The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Matthew chapter 12, and we're going to read from verse 38. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. If we go to verse 43, when an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through and and through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. Let's pray. Father, these are difficult words to wrap our minds around and to take root in our hearts. But Father, we pray for for wisdom and understanding this morning clarity. Father, we thank you again for your word and and believe that it's your word that can change our lives, shape our lives, and make us into people who look like Jesus Christ. So that's our prayer this morning. Amen. Do you remember being a kid, uh, listening in to adults, having a conversation? The grown-ups were, were talking amongst themselves. You were listening in, and you felt like you, you were following the conversation. You, you knew what they were talking about. And then one of the adults would say something, and, you, and, and it just suddenly threw you, and you suddenly realized they weren't actually talking about what you thought they were talking about, but now you weren't really sure what they were talking about. You, know, you ever had that experience sometimes as a kid, right? Sometimes it seemed like the grown-ups were speaking some sort of coded language, Similar kind of experience is when you, when you uh, walk in halfway through a conversation. If you walk in midway through a conversation, uh, sometimes it takes a minute or two to, to catch on to what's being said. At first, you're sure they're talking about this, but as it turns out, they're talking about this other thing, completely different altogether thing over here. Sometimes it feels that way when I listen to the conversations between Jesus and the Pharisees or Jesus and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law. Uh, it always starts out with me knowing exactly what they're talking about. I always feel like I'm, I'm following the conversation. But, so, for example, this, this morning in the passage that we just, just read just now, we, we have the Pharisees come to Jesus, and they're demanding a miraculous sign. They're demanding a miraculous uh, sign. And at this point, all I'm thinking is, this is an absurd request. Because we're in chapter 12 already. Right? If you wanted to make that kind of request, you should have done that way back when in chapter 3, or maybe chapter, maybe chapter 4, but, but a lot's happened since then, right? If you go through your NIV or your ESV or your ASV or whatever version of the Bible you're using, you'll notice these, these chapters all have headings and there's section headings as well, and they say stuff like this, don't they? They say stuff like, Jesus heals the sick, Jesus calms the storm. Jesus raises the dead girl. Jesus drives out demons. Jesus gives sight to the blind. Jesus heals a centurion servant. Jesus heals many. Jesus heals the leper. Jesus heals... I mean, how many more miraculous signs could you possibly want? You feel like, so where have you been the last 12 chapters, right? Did you not see all the miraculous things that Jesus has already done? 
So it's at this point where I turn to Jesus, and I'm expecting him to give that kind of pushback, to give that kind of response and retort, but he doesn't do that. Instead, this is what he says. He says, a wicked and adulterous generation. Well, that was last week's. (laughs) Here's what he says. I'll just read it to you. He didn't say that. So Jesus says, a wicked and evil generation demands a sign. A wicked and evil generation demands a sign, but none shall be given it. None shall be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. If you want to just circle that word none in your Bibles, or if you have your iPad with you, you can just tap it, right? None shall be given you. This is one of those moments where I feel like I've walked in halfway through a conversation. It's one of those moments where, where I feel like I, I thought I knew what the adults were talking about, but, but apparently they're not talking about what I thought they were talking about, but now I'm not really sure what they are talking about. This doesn't make any sense. So Jesus has already performed all of these miraculous signs, and he's about to perform even more miraculous signs right after this. What's he talking about? Well, sometimes it helps if you read on, because Jesus' response to their demand uh, for a miraculous sign doesn't end there, does it? He has more to say. The only trouble is, as you read on, I think Jesus' response becomes even more confusing. Because here's what he starts talking about. He starts talking about demon possession. And he starts talking about exorcism. You know what I feel like now? Now I feel like Jesus, Jesus is way off topic. Right? I thought the Pharisees, but now Jesus is way off top. It seems like he's just on, on some other subject, and he's, he's really not addressing the issue at all. That, that, that's, that's what it, it feels like he's not answering their question at all. So just to quickly recap, the, the summarize the, the confusing story so far. The Pharisees have come, and they're demanding a miraculous sign. Jesus says, none shall, the confusing first part of Jesus' response is, none shall be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah even though he's performed all these miracles and he's about to perform some more. And, and, then, and then the confusing second part of Jesus' answer is, and now I'm going to talk to you about demon possession and exorcism. So, so my plan this morning is this. What I'd like to do is take that confusing second part of Jesus' answer and use it to clarify and clear up the confusing first part of Jesus' answer. Does that sound like a good idea? Probably not, but I'm committed now, so, so here goes. Okay, so, so here's the confusing second part of Jesus' answer, right? The confusing second part is, is this, right? He's, he says, he's, he starts off by talking about uh, demons and, the demon, and exorcism, and this is what he says. He says, when an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there, and the final condition of that person is worse than the first. Um, You know, this has always struck me as a rather odd passage. And the reason is, is because just a, a few verses before this, Jesus has been performing exorcisms. He's been driving out demons. If this is a commentary on how demon possession and exorcism work, then Jesus' ministry is a disaster. It's a a catastrophe, right? He's he's actually making things worse because what happens is this demon goes and gets seven other demons and and so it's seven times worse, right? But it does say, actually, that these demons are even more evil than the first, so actually I'm not really sure how you go about calculating that kind of damage. 
So, so if this is a description and commentary on how demon possession and exorcism work, then, then Jesus isn't helping people. He's, he's actually just providing a little bit of momentary relief, which he knows full well is going to end up in deeper, more disturbing problems later on down the road. I think I've quit before that if I was being dragged to Jesus, kicking and screaming for, for exorcism, I'd be like, no, no, please, I, I'm going to keep hold of this little demon. Thank you very much. I, I, I don't want seven others. Better the devil you know, right? So... So this is why it's highly unlikely that Jesus is commenting here on the nature of demon possession and exorcism and, and saying this is how this, this works. In fact, his, his uh, closing lines to his response are, are, um, make that very clear. He, he says, so it will be with this generation. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. Remember, he's, he's addressing the question. They're demanding a sign. He starts off by saying, you're a wicked and evil generation demanding a sign. He closes his response again with these words. This is how it will be with this wicked generation. And in other words, he's saying, this is a kind of parable about you guys. Well, not, not you guys, but those guys back then, right? He's saying, this is a kind of parable about this generation, about this generation of Israel. So, so the question is, what is Jesus saying through this parable about the nation of Israel? Well, the, the, the talk about a house, the house that is left unoccupied, the house that is swept clean and put in order, the house which the demon goes and finds seven other spirits more wicked than itself to come and inhabit, the mention of that house gives us a, l- a little bit of a clue here. Okay? So follow this. You, you remember, do you remember the time when, when Jesus was a young boy and uh, he goes missing? I mean, they're, they're in this caravan, they're heading out away from Jerusalem, and I, and I think it was like a day or two, wasn't it, when, when his parents suddenly realized he's not with aunt so-and-so, and he's not with his friends up ahead either, so, so we must have left him back in Jerusalem. So they turn around, they head back to Jerusalem, they're frantically searching for the boy, and then they, they show up at the temple, and they finally catch up with him. There he is, and Jesus says, did you not know I would be in my father's what? My father's house. house. And the house there refers to the temple. Later on in Jesus' ministry, he bursts into that very same temple that he was in when he was a young boy. He bursts in and he tips over the money changers' tables and he drives them out and he says, you've turned this into a den of thieves, but it is written, my house will be a house of prayer. And the house he's referring to there is the temple. So the likelihood is, is that whenever, the reason why Jesus refers to the temple as a house is because the very Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament that Jesus was reading, always referred to the temple of the Lord as the house of the Lord. This is the house. So it's quite likely when, when Jesus is talking about a house that is unoccupied, a house that is swept clean and put in order, he's quite likely referring to Israel's attempts at reformation and revolution. He, he's, he's, saying, he's saying, look, maybe he's thinking of the Maccabean revolt, which had successfully pushed out the Assyrian occupation, pushed them out, swept the nation clean, swept the temple clean, and put it in order. But it was still unoccupied. It was still unoccupied because the shine of kind of glory had not yet returned. God was still not with them. Or, or maybe he was thinking of Herod's massive temple rebuilding project, which had put the, the, swept the temple clean and put it in order, yet it was still unoccupied. The Shekinah glory had still not returned. And God was still not with them. Or maybe he's thinking of the Pharisees' sometimes violent attempts to take control of their land and control of their temple, sweep it all in order, put it, make it all clean and tidy, but, but uh, the Shekinah glory had not returned and God was still not with them. The point is this. 
The point is, Israel had attempted to get rid of their demons before, but they hadn't done a proper job of it, and they had left themselves open to even worse internal trouble. They left themselves open to even worse internal trouble. Sure, these movements of reform and revolution, they could, they could clean house for a while, but they couldn't prevent the demons returning in force. Oh, good, you got rid of the Assyrians. Great, but watch out, because here comes Rome. Now listen to their demand again. This is why Jesus, when, when, they, when they come and they make demand for a miraculous sign, he doesn't respond the way I think he should. He doesn't say, well, well haven't you, where have you been the last 12 chapters? Haven't you seen all these miraculous signs I've been doing? Wait, wait, you'll like my next trick. You'll like, you'll, watch. Sometimes we talk about this like, this is, like we read this as if it, it was like some magic show or, or a circus act. Oh, well, you know, we can see you juggling, but can you juggle and walk the tightrope at the same time? I want to see that one. But, sometimes we, but that's not what they're asking here. That's not what they're asking. Um, you see, they saw Jesus heal the sick. They saw that happen. But they were like, well, you can heal the sick, but can you heal our land of this pagan disease? Oh, you can drive out demons, and frankly, we don't know whether you're doing that by the power of Beelzebub or not. We're not sure, but however it is you're doing that, you may drive out demons, but can you drive out Rome? You see, they saw him heal the sick. They saw him drive out demons, and they were, they were like this, arms folded. We're, we're not impressed. We're like, wow, they weren't impressed. No, they, they, we're, they weren't impressed. We're not impressed. No, you, you heal our land. You drive out Rome, these pagan demons, and heal us of this pagan disease then, then we'll talk. Give us a miraculous sign that you can do this, that you're going to do this, that you have a strategy for doing this, that you, this is what you can, you're capable of doing, and then you will have our undivided attention, Jesus. And Jesus knows exactly what they're demanding. So Jesus is not off topic, like I always thought he was. And uh, These aren't just rambling, random thoughts like I always thought they were. Jesus is answering their question. And and here's what he's saying. He's saying, your understanding of evil, the way you define evil, is so limited, so narrow, so parochial, so shallow, so simplistic, so superficial. I'm running out of adjectives here, but but this this is, you think that evil is embodied by the people that you hate. Well, that's convenient. You, you think that people is embodied, evil is embodied by the people that you hate. You think that evil is defined and personified by Rome. You think that evil is all about this occupation and this narrow strip of land here in the Middle East. You think it's all about that. And your limited, narrow, parochial, superficial understanding of evil is leading you to even more superficial and shallow responses to evil. You want the quick fix. You want the simplistic answer. You want the easy out. You want the magic pill. And this is why it never works. And this is why the demons keep coming back. Well, but before I'm too tough on the, on the Pharisees, uh, I should pull out my list again that I've got going off my uh, top ten reasons why I would have made a great Pharisee back then. I think I, I think I shared one of those reasons with you last time, right? Well, here's another one. I think this is my top three. Okay, here's another reason why I would have made a great Pharisee back then, because like them, I like the quick fix. I, I like the simplistic answer. I would say simple and straightforward answer, but sometimes it's just simplistic. I, I want the easy out. I want that magic pill. I lean towards that. I think our culture, our culture leans towards that. And boy, am I a product of our culture, no doubt. No doubt. Uh, here's an example of where I've 
where I've seen this in our culture, and I, I hope you don't think this is too trite of an example, but it's a, it's a fairly obvious one, so I picked it, right? I was, I was reading an article uh, the other day which, which was talking about the diet industry, and, and, it, and it was saying how um, in, in the diet industry, the, the diet books, they, every year they make X amount of money, I don't know how much, but they sell a lot. I mean, that's a large portion of the diet industry, but it's not nearly as large as the diet food products that are out there. They're, they're way more. But the diet food products and the diet books combined, combined, don't make nearly as much again as a third, and by far the largest segment of the diet industry. And you know what that is? The magic pill. Yeah, the, the one that's going to shed pounds, burn fat, and leave you trim. Right, so, so by far the lion's share of, of, the, uh, of, of that industry. Um, my, my wife used to work at the natural grocers here in town for a year or two, and, uh, and, and she said, you always knew when Dr. Oz was recommending some new magic pill. Because <laughs> yeah, about, for about two weeks they'd be inundated with requests for this particular product. And, uh, and, they, and they always knew when there was a rerun on, because three months later it would be the same, the same product. Oh, it's that episode again, right? And, and sometimes, she said, sometimes the, the, the customers would ask this very awkward question, uh, does it work? Um, uh, straight face, serious question. They, they say, if I take this pill, is it going to make me skinny? And let's put it this way. My wife is a very honest woman, and, um, and sometimes they didn't really like her response. She, she, she wasn't rude. I said she was honest, right? So, so she, the point is the easy out, the quick fix, the simplistic answer, the magic pill. We, we, we love that. We love that. And sometimes that bleeds. It bleeds into the, the culture, bleeds into the church. It bleeds into the church, and, and, and it infects the way that I th I'm trying to follow Jesus, but the culture just keeps spilling over into to my mindset and the way I'm thinking. And, and so how often have I recommended, let's say, the, the, the latest, greatest book by a Christian author, and I'm like, this is it, you've got to read this because the answer's in here. This, this is the fix. Or you've got to go to this Christian seminar or go to this conference or have this new therapy or have this breakthrough spiritual experience or follow these rules or here's this formula or these are the three easy steps or whatever. We often latch, whatever it is, just think for a moment, what is it that you often latch onto and say, this is the fix, I've got the fix right here. I think, I think we all have that impulse, don't we, to sometimes oversimplify, not always, but sometimes oversimplify our reality, to reduce our problems, our complex problems, to easier to understand categories. And I'll tell you why I do this. I don't know why you do this, but I'll tell you why I do this. It's because sometimes I want to get away with the, with the cliché. I, I want to get away with the simple formula. I want to get away with the three easy steps. Hey, I don't even mind if it's 20 easy steps. As long as I've got these steps that I can follow and I've got this, this is the fix. This is the fix. Because it's clean, it's tidy, it's straightforward. But how often have we tried that? And how often do the demons keep coming back? And this is the problem with the leadership, the spiritual leadership of Israel. They had their simple formulas, their quick fixes, their simplistic definitions of evil. They'll say, have you got the political savvy, Jesus? Have you got the military strategy, Jesus? Do you have the right religious ideology, Jesus? Do you have the latest book, the latest breakthrough experience, the therapy, whatever? Do you have the fix for the way that we have defined and understood evil? And Jesus says it is a wicked. Look at where he locates the evil. <laughs> he says it's a wicked and adulterous generation that demands this kind of a sign, that chases after these kinds of signs and promises. 
He locates the evil with them, first of all. And, and then he, and he says, and if you continue to pursue these kinds of simplistic answers, if you continue to pursue these kinds of shallow responses to evil, if you continue to do this, then you will end up even more wicked than you were when you started. He, he said, you know, you, you think times are evil now? Wait till you've got seven more demons. Then we'll talk. So it will be, he says, with this wicked generation. So it will be with this wicked generation. Of course, Jesus is going to deal with evil. But, but not the way they defined evil or understood evil. But he's going to deal with, with evil. Um, and he's not just going to apply a band-aid to this cancer of evil. He's, he's not going to shuffle the, the rearrange the furniture on the, the deck of the Titanic while it's sinking. He's going to go right to the heart of the matter. He's going to deal with evil at the deepest level. He is going to, he's going to go right into the belly of the beast. And what better picture could Jesus give them than the sign of Jonah? What better picture could he give than the sign of the prophet Jonah himself? If, if you don't know the story of the prophet Jonah, Jonah was a uh, prophet who was sent by God to Nineveh. The only trouble is, Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh. Um, and the reason is not because he doesn't think it will make a great holiday vacation destination. It, it's because he hated those people. For him, they defined evil. They were the embodiment of evil. They were the personification of evil. And so he runs the other way. I don't want to help those people. I don't want to see them repent. I want to see them burn. So he runs the other way and he finds passage on a ship and they set out to, uh, set out to sea and, and he's running from God. But this storm whips up and, and the, before long the boat is like this little toy boat thrown by this raging sea and the storm gets worse and then the storm gets worse and eventually Jonah speaks up and he says, he says uh, I think this may have something to do with me. And I think that if you were to just throw me overboard, because frankly I'd rather die than go and help those people, you throw me overboard and I think things may calm down, you may save yourselves. And so that's what they do. They grab him, they throw him overboard, and I'm sure he disappeared straight away into those waves, into that sea. And, uh, and this giant fish comes up and it's this great creature of the deep swallows him whole and takes him down to the depths. Now that is a... Man, that's, that's a terrifying situation, no matter who you are, right? Terrifying. But in the Hebrew mind, in, in the mind of the ancient Near East, this is the stuff of nightmares. This, this is the worst possible fate that anyone could possibly have. Now, we may not catch that, but, but here's why. You see, sometimes when we think of the sea, here's one of the images that comes to mind when I, when I think of the sea. I think of that. The sea. Actually, a friend of mine this last week sent me a picture just like this, and he said, this is where I'm having lunch. Where are you having lunch? <laughs> what kind of a friend does that? Right. I, I think I was having lunch in my windowless office here at the, at the church. Sometimes when you think of the sea, this is what comes to mind. But, but, but when, when they thought of the sea, the sea was a symbol, they didn't think of this, the sea was a symbol of chaos and evil. It was a symbol of death and destruction. The sea and the great creatures that lived in it, in, in the ancient Near East, in, in the Hebrew mind, it was a symbol of everything that was threatening to wipe us away, end our very existence. 
And so to hear about a man who was actually thrown into the sea, who was actually swallowed whole by one of these great creatures of the deep and taken down to the depths, this is the stuff of Hebrew nightmares. This is the worst possible fate that anyone could possibly have. Because what they're saying is that he was essentially thrown into the very heart of death and destruction, of chaos and evil. Evil itself. And so here, here's what happens. Jonah cries out. From the belly of the beast. And he says, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas. And the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah, Pilate asked. They answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him, crucify him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabatani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jonah cries out, I have been banished from your sight. I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. Again, all of their hopes wrapped up in this temple. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath, the earth beneath barred me in forever. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Jesus is saying, I'm going to deal with evil. Not the way you've defined evil, but I'm going to deal with evil. I'm going to go to the very heart of the matter and to deal with it at the deepest level. I'm going to the belly of the beast. And, and I'm going to give you this sign of Jonah. Here's how I'm going to deal with evil. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And Jonah continues to cry out. He says, but you, Lord, my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. You, Lord, brought my life up from the pit. And you know what happens next? This, this fish spits him out onto dry land. Jonah ends up back on dry land. You brought my life up from the pit. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is God's response to evil. This is how God has begun to deal with evil in our world. Not the way that the Pharisees define evil, but as they came and they demanded a miraculous sign, uh, how are you going to deal with evil? Jesus says, this is how I'm going to deal with evil. This is the resurrection of Christ, is how God has begun to deal with evil in this world. Now, the, the question, let me just, be, just stop there for a second, because I want to be clear about what we're asking here. How is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God, dealing with evil in this world? How is it a sign of God dealing with evil? Um, well, in order to see this, I think it's very important that we understand when we think of resurrection that we also think of new creation. Uh, 
When you talk about the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you also have to talk about the doctrine of the new creation. These things are tied together. No, they're not just tied together. In some sense, in some sense, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the new creation. Did you, did you catch? Is the new creation? I just want you to. Let me put it another way: the very first glimpse that this world has ever had. The very first glimpse of, that this universe has ever had of the new creation is the resurrected Jesus Christ. It's the very first glimpse we've ever had of the new creation is the resurrected Jesus Christ. Here, here's a, a quote. Well, this is the way uh, one theologian puts it, and I, I've used this quote before, so I, I hope you recognize it. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not an odd event within the world as it is, but the foundation of a new world, the world as it has begun to be. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not an odd event within the world as it is, but the foundation of a new world, the world as it has begun to be. It is not an absurd event within the old world, but the symbol and starting point of the new world. The resurrection ushers in not simply a new religious possibility, not simply a new ethic or a new way of salvation, but a new creation. The resurrected Jesus Christ is the first glimpse this world, this universe has ever had of the new creation that is coming, that rushes towards us. Now, if you just follow this chain with me, this, this chain of thought for a moment, and, and then we'll, we'll end, okay? So, so here's the thing. If, if Christ is the firstborn of all creation, the firstborn of all creation, he's the first of the new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has, has come. If you're in Christ, if you're living in the light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, as we said about, a, about five, six weeks ago, you, you are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. In fact, he says what counts, what counts is the new creation. What counts is it, it doesn't matter what you keep making it about, Paul says to the Galatians. He says, look, what counts is a new creation. And if you're a new creation living in the light of the resurrected Jesus Christ, the firstborn of all creation, then, then what, what you'll find is that God is dealing right there in your heart with evil. He's dealing with evil in your heart. And you know that right there, there's no quick fix, is there? There's no simplistic answers. There's no easy out. Oh, man, there's no magic pill. Sometimes I wish there was. But there isn't. But God's dealing with evil in your heart. And as he deals with evil in your heart, you will find that you... As a person living in the light of the resurrection, you will start to deal with and confront evil in this world. And, and as you confront and deal with evil in this world, as you love justice, as you do justice and love mercy, love mercy and do justice and walk humbly with your God, living in the light of the resurrected Jesus Christ, as you confront evil in this world, sometimes sickening evil, evil that will make you sick to the stomach, evil that is sometimes overwhelming, as you do justice in the face of all that, you are declaring an end to the world the way it is and you are announcing the new creation that is to come. With every act of justice, you're saying this is the new creation. With every act of mercy, you are saying this is what new creation looks like. With every act of forgiveness, you're saying this is what new creation looks like. With every act of grace and sacrificial generosity, you are saying this is what new creation looks like. With every act of love, you are saying this is the new creation. This is what the new creation looks like. With every act like that, you are declaring, you are declaring the end of the world as we know it, and you are announcing and pointing to the new creation that rushes towards us. And, and one day Jesus is going to. 
He's, he's going to redeem all of this. He, he, this creation that he says is good and says is very good in Genesis chapter 1, he, he's going to redeem this. This is his, and he's going to redeem it. He's going to redeem his creation wholly and completely. And when he does, we'll be able to look up like the Apostle John does in Revelation. And we're going to see this new heavens and this new earth. And there's, there's all sorts of things that he wants to say about it. It says, there's new heavens, new earth, for the old heavens and the old earth have passed away. Does that sound familiar? Right? It's exactly the same thing that Paul says about us. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Same phrase he uses in, in Revelation. If, if you are a new... If the, the new heavens and new earth, the old heavens and old earth had passed away. And there's all sorts of things he wants to point out about the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation. Uh, at one point he starts to talk about the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Uh, at one point he starts to talk about the marriage between the, the, the bride and the groom and the light that's there and the streets that, that are there and, and all of that. But the first thing, the first thing that he points to, the first thing that he notices, the first thing that strikes him and he wants to tell us about is this. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And here's the first thing he notices. And there was no longer any sea. And if you've been following along this morning, that's your cue to shrug your shoulders and say, well, of course there wasn't. And if you got that, then it's probably my cue to sit down. So let's pray. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We've, um, we've often uh, tried to put these band-aids over this cancer of evil. We get obsessed and attached with our simplistic answers. Father, we thank you that you have dealt with evil at the deepest level through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we thank you that you are continuing to do that in our lives. Father, we look forward to the day when we will look up with John and see the new heavens and the new earth. And we will see that there is no longer any sea. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. And we're dismissed.